Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Back in 1976, the production crew of the TV show The Six Million Dollar Man was preparing to shoot the episode Carnival of Spies, in which Steve Austin tracks an East German scientist to a traveling carnival that turns out to be the cover for a spy ring planning to sabotage an American rocket. The production crew got busy prepping the funhouse of Long Beach's Pike's Amusement Park, in order to film a scene in which our overpriced hero takes a spooky ride in one of the cars, while ghouls, demons, and skeletons spring out all around him. One of the film crew noticed the mannequin of a corpse hanging from a noose in the corner that needed to be moved. But when he yanked on the mannequin's arm, it broke off at the shoulder. When the crewman took a closer look at the dismembered limb he now held in his hands, he realized he was looking at a knob of yellow bone poking out beneath layers of desiccated skin. This wasn't a mannequin, after all, but the remains of a human being. It turned out the hanging corpse was actually a man named Elmer McCurdy, a real-life Western outlaw who died in a gunfight with police back in 1911. Truth be told, McCurdy wasn't much of an outlaw. By the early 20th century, the Old West that had been made famous in dime novels and cowboy movies was nearly extinct. The country was becoming industrialized. And with the dawning of the age of automation, soon horses would be replaced by these newfangled motorized vehicles. Throughout his life, McCurdy had always been a rather hapless criminal. He got by mostly perpetrating petty crimes although he eventually tried moving up to the big leagues with a train robbery near Okessa, Oklahoma that only managed to net him $46 and two jugs of whiskey. Police tracked McCurdy down to a barnyard on the Kansas border, where they gunned him down in a pile of hay. From there, McCurdy's body was taken to a funeral home in Pawhuska. But McCurdy didn't have any friends or family willing to claim him. The undertaker in charge got an idea how he could turn this into a money-making scheme. So he embalmed McCurdy's body, dressed him up in a cowboy hat and spurs, and allowed visitors to come view the corpse if they'd leave a nickel in his mouth. Five years went by before a scheming carnival barker showed up at the funeral home claiming to be McCurdy's next of kin. He took the body with him, and within weeks he had begun selling tickets to come see the body of a real-life Old West outlaw at his traveling sideshow. From there, McCurdy's mummy bounced around from town to town in a variety of wax museums, carnivals, and haunted houses. In 1933, a Hollywood director named Dwayne Esper used McCurdy's body as a publicity prop that he set up in a bunch of theater lobbies to showcase the dangers of being an addict for his anti-drug film, Narcotic. Elmer's corpse made its big-screen debut when it was used in the 1967 horror film She Freak. After that, the body continued to make the rounds in various tourist attractions until it somehow wound up in Pike's Amusement Park in 1976. 
Once authorities were able to determine McCurdy's history, they sent the body to Summit View Cemetery in Guthrie, Oklahoma, where it was finally laid to rest. The idea that we can preserve the dead and hold on to the remains is one that dates back to prehistoric times. And, gross as it sounds, coincides with our ability to preserve food. Both preserving the dead and preserving what we eat probably came about at the same time, and most likely were accidents based on the environment. Nomadic people living in frozen environments learned that both the meat from animals they killed kept longer in the cold, and so too would their fallen dead. At the same time, people living in arid climates, particularly those locales with a high salt content, found their meat drying out faster and remaining edible longer. Not only that, but when members of their tribes died, they discovered the flesh of the bodies had turned into human jerky. Over time, people began to find ways to intentionally apply these preservation techniques. This was done to both honor the dead and to keep their loved ones around even longer. In 1599 AD, the English writer Richard Hacklett coined a term to describe dead bodies preserved in such a manner using a variation on the Latin word mumia, which itself was borrowed from a similar medieval Arabic word to describe the preserved dead. The word Richard Hacklett came up with was, of course, mummy. I'm Nate Hale, and this episode is absolutely not brought to you by Jack Link's Jerky, and this is The Conspirators. When you hear the word mummy, it likely conjures up images of ancient Egypt and of the Hollywood version we see in monster movies. But there's a lot more to mummies than just what's been shown to us in bad Tom Cruise movies. Pretty much every grade school kid knows that the ancient Egyptians developed a highly sophisticated method of preserving their dead. But mummies have been found all over the world in all sorts of cultures. One thing you have to differentiate between are the mummies that were found to have been preserved through natural means and those that were purposely made that way by human hands. In terms of making a mummy, you basically have to deprive it of two things, moisture and bacteria. The ancient Egyptians perfected this technique sometime around 2600 BC during the 4th and 5th dynasties. They would continue to develop these methods for the next 2,000 years, well into the Roman era. The degree by which the dead were preserved depended on how wealthy the individual had been in life. The typical Egyptian mummification process took 70 days to complete. Special priests worked as embalmers, who would treat and wrap the body. They began by removing the internal organs, which would have been the first things to decompose. They used a metal hook to yank the brain out through the deceased's nostrils, a technique that would often disfigure the individual. They then usually made an incision on the left side of the body through which they would remove most of the major organs leaving the heart in place since it was considered the center of a person's being. The remaining organs were placed in special boxes or canopic jars that were buried alongside the mummy. They did this to more than just humans, mind you. Thousands of mummified animals have been found throughout Egypt as well. The drying process was the most time-consuming part of mummification. This was done by covering the body with a salt compound called natron that removed all the moisture from the body. 
When the body was completely dried out, they cleaned the salt off and wrapped it in linens before performing some spiritual rituals to prepare the soul for the afterlife. The reason why Egyptians mummified many of their dead was because they believed that you needed to preserve the body after death since it was the home of the soul, and destroying it prematurely might cause the soul to be lost as well. Although the Egyptians get all the glory for making the most famous mummies in the world, they're not the only place mummies have been found. Some of the world's oldest mummies have been found inside bogs across Ireland. The oldest bog mummy was dated at 4,000 years old, around 500 years older than King Tutankhamun of Egypt. You see, bogs have very little oxygen, which prevents bacteria from breaking down the bodies that are thrown into them. Although the mummification process in these bog mummies was purely accidental, many of their deaths were something entirely different. It turns out many of the mummies that have been dragged out of bogs throughout Ireland died violent deaths. One famous mummy, nicknamed Toland Man, who lived sometime between 375 to 210 BC, was found with his tongue distended and a noose knotted around his throat. Others, like the old Krogan Man, whose remains were discovered in 2003, had been fatally stabbed, disemboweled, and decapitated. The oldest known intentionally created mummies are Chile's Chinchorro mummies, often known as the Black Mummies, because of the methods used to preserve them. The Chinchorro were a fishing community who lived along the coast of what is now southern Peru and northern Chile around 9,000 years ago. Although we don't know why the Chinchorro mummified their dead, we have a pretty good idea how they did it. One of the first things they did was to remove the body's head, arms, and legs. Then they scooped out the organs and stripped off the flesh, which they would then later reattach to the skeleton by stretching it over the remains like pulling on a sock. While they had the skin off, they shoved hot coals into the abdomen to try the body out. Then, after reskinning the individual, they finished the job off by attaching a crop of black hair and painting the body black with a coating of liquid manganese. I should point out that although the two methods I mentioned are the most common techniques for creating a mummy, there is also a third, less common method that's been practiced as well, self-mummification. The most well-known practitioners of self-mummification are the monks of Yamagata Prefecture in Japan. The Japanese term for this practice is Soko Shinbutsu. It's a practice that is believed by those who have attempted it as a way to achieve spiritual ascension. The ritual begins with a 3,000-day training period in which the monks eat a special diet that deprives the body of nutrients and slowly starves the individual without killing him too early. In addition, the monk consumes a poisonous tea made from a kind of sap known as yurushi, which facilitates vomiting and may act as a sort of embalming fluid that turns the body toxic to many types of bacteria. At the end of the process, the monk allows himself to be buried alive inside a tiny chamber with only a small air hole. There they sit, chant, and ring a bell to signal that they are still alive. Once the bell stops ringing, the chamber would be completely sealed and would only be reopened three years later to assure the process was a success. To date, although hundreds of people have attempted the process, it's believed that only 24 individuals have gone all the way to full mummification. What makes the study of mummies so fascinating to modern scientists is that the careful preservation of human remains, such as the bog mummies of Ireland, gives us our best glimpse of what they were like when they were still alive thousands of years ago. Interest in the study of mummies can be found in scholars all the way back to Ptolemaic Greece, 
around 300 BC. But real structured scientific study of mummies didn't really begin until the early 20th century. Prior to that, people had some pretty strange attitudes about mummies. During the 16th century, many pre-Raphaelite artists actually used a homemade pigment known as mummy brown, which was pretty much what it sounds like, ground-up remains of Egyptian mummies. Even more disturbing, though, were the other things people believed mummies were good for. Back around Shakespeare's era, wealthy Europeans got the peculiar idea that consuming mummies could cure all sorts of ailments. During the 16th and 17th centuries, many members of royalty, priests, and scientists routinely ingested remedies containing human bones, blood, and fat to cure everything from headaches to epilepsy. Many people even believed that different kinds of mummies could cure different ailments. Ground-up Egyptian mummy, for example, was thought to be the cure for internal bleeding. Thomas Willis, a 17th century pioneer in brain science, came up with a concoction of powdered human skull and chocolate to cure excessive bleeding. It was thought that human fat could be rubbed on your body to cure aches and pains. Or you could shove powdered moss scraped off an ancient corpse up your nose to prevent a nosebleed. Taking a cue from vampire legends, the 16th century German-Swiss physician Paracelsus believed drinking human blood could bring you new vitality. There's even a 1679 recipe from a Franciscan apothecary for making your very own blood marmalade to go on your morning toast. By the 18th and 19th centuries, these cannibalistic remedies had mostly come to an end. Although by the time the Victorian era was in full swing, another new macabre fad involving Egyptian mummies began among the rich and famous. Unwrapping parties. After Napoleon Bonaparte began his military campaign into Syria and Egypt between 1798 and 1801, a new fascination with all things Egyptian swept over Europe. Egyptian influence began springing up in architecture, advertising, even women's fashions. In 1822, France established the first official study of Egyptology, and Egyptomania spread everywhere. Wealthy Europeans began traveling in droves to Egypt, looking to bring home their very own Egyptian mummy as a souvenir. The black market in mummy sales became so great throughout the 19th century that in 1833, a Trappist monk named Abbot Ferdinand de Garam wrote that it would be hardly respectable on one's return from Egypt to present oneself without a mummy in one hand and a crocodile in the other. No, I don't know what they mean by the crocodile thing either. A London surgeon named Thomas Pettigrew threw some of the most lavish unwrapping parties of them all, attracting as many as 3,000 guests at one time. Scores of people would show up at these parties to eat, drink, and drink some more before desecrating the dead. Keep in mind, all the drinking probably helped, considering the smell had to be horrendous. By the time the practice had begun to fall out of fashion in the late 19th century, many authors, including Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, had begun writing stories about mummies coming to life and seeking revenge after being disrespected by the living. This would, of course, lead to the endless string of mummy movies Hollywood has produced ever since. Of course, stories like that are just fiction, and the dead don't come back to life. Or do they? In Palermo, Italy's Capuchin Catacombs, you can find the final resting place of one of the most perfectly preserved mummies in the world. Only this particular mummy doesn't appear to rest all the time. In 1922, year-old Rosalia Lombardo died of pneumonia. Little is known about the girl's short life, but after she died, her body was cared for by a skilled mortician named Alfredo Salafia. 
who did such an incredible job embalming her that even today she almost looks as if she died yesterday. In fact, recent MRIs taken of the girl's body show that all of her internal organs are still intact. The girl is so well-preserved that the locals have dubbed her Sleeping Beauty. But it's not the little girl's careful preservation that has turned her glass-lidded coffin into a tourist destination. It's because each day it appears the little girl will open her eyes and blink at you, showing you her intact blue irises. Time-lapse photographs appear to show the little girl's eyes slowly opening and closing throughout the day. The catacombs curator Dario Piombino Mascali insists the blinking is an optical illusion created by the light from one of the side windows hitting the girl's partially opened eyes during the day. But, if that's true, it still makes for a very disturbing effect. It should come as no surprise that mummies make major tourist attractions. Several dead popes are on display at the Vatican, and the perfectly preserved body of Vladimir Lenin in Moscow's Red Square draws in hundreds of thousands of spectators each year. There's one particular tourist attraction in Mexico that people to this day still argue whether they're looking at a real corpse or not. La Pascualita is the name given to an incredibly realistic department store mannequin that many people swear is an actual mummified corpse. Not only is her face disquietingly detailed for a mannequin, but her hands show all the tiny ridges and details you'd find in real human hands. Her legs even show tiny varicose veins. People began noticing La Pascualita ever since she first appeared in the window of a bridal store in Chihuahua back in 1930. It wasn't just the bride's lifelike appearance that struck people, though, but also by the strong resemblance she bore to the shopkeeper's daughter, Pascuala Esparza. So the legend goes the young woman was preparing to be married when she died from a bite from a black widow spider on her wedding day. It wasn't long after when a new mannequin wearing a wedding dress showed up in the shopkeeper's window. Some customers over the years have sworn the mannequin's eyes follow them as they walk around the store. Others have even claimed to turn around and find the mannequin in a slightly different position. There's yet another legend that claims La Pascualita really is just a store mannequin, but it was enchanted by a French magician who became enamored with the mannequin's beauty and brought it to life. Now, of course, all this sounds like simply a pretty good story to bring in the tourists. It's difficult to determine if a woman named Pascuala Esparza ever even existed at all. But close-up photographs of the mannequin's highly detailed hands make it tough to fully discount the idea either that this mannequin might have once been a living person. On the other hand, no pun intended, it's pretty difficult to believe a human body would have lasted this long in the heat of the Mexican sun for more than 80 years. Hey y'all, spooky season is here, and if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley. Not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. 
Mummified human remains continue to be found in all sorts of unusual places around the globe. In February 2016, a fisherman discovered the mummified remains of a German adventurer named Manfred Fritz Bajorat on his yacht floating off the Philippines coast. Bajorat had been sailing his yacht, the Sayo, around the world for 20 years. His dried out remains were found slumped over in the vessel's radio room. It appeared that the salt air and dry ocean wind had mummified the body. Although initially it was believed he may have been dead since 2009 and that his corpse had been floating out there on the water for seven years, it was later determined that the man had died of a heart attack only a week before being found. Which, if accurate, still makes the state of his body mummifying so quickly a bit of a scientific mystery. Back in March 2014, a sad tale emerged of a woman who experienced a sort of life after death when her mummified remains were discovered in her Pontiac, Michigan home. Pia Ferenkopf was found dead in the back seat of her Jeep in her home's garage. Only no one found her body for five years. She had been a contractor with Chrysler Financial, and she quit her job just a few months before her death. Her family lived far away and had lost touch with her. None of her neighbors knew her very well, although occasionally one of them would come over and mow her lawn when it grew too tall. It was believed that Ferenkopf traveled a lot, so when she wasn't seen... No one really missed her. When Ferenkopf died, she had more than $87,000 in her bank account. Her utility bills and mortgage were being paid automatically from her account. So while her body decomposed in the garage, the funds kept going out. It was only after the money ran out and the bank foreclosed on the property that her body was finally discovered. Sadly, stories like this one of a person who has been forgotten by everyone aren't all that uncommon. Yvette Vickers was a former actress, pinup model, and singer who never rose above the lower tier of Hollywood celebrities. She was born Yvette Vetter in 1928. Her first movie appearance was in Sunset Boulevard in 1950, using her real last name. Although later on she changed her name to Vickers and continued to pick up roles in a series of B-movies, including Reform School Girl, and probably her most famous gig as the town floozy in 1958's Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. She continued to find work in a series of television guest appearances and bit parts in movies like Attack of the Giant Leeches. In July 1959, she became Playboy's Playmate of the Month, and she even recorded a couple of albums along the way. The fame is fleeting in Hollywood, and as Yvette grew older, the work dried up. By the time she reached her late 30s, Yvette was considered too sexy to play anyone's mother, yet too old to still be seen as a teen vixen. She spent much of the remainder of her life making appearances at comic book and sci-fi conventions, signing autographs for 20 bucks a pop. As she grew older, Yvette began to develop macular degeneration, and as her eyesight dwindled, she also began to exhibit signs of extreme paranoia. Friends would describe how Yvette would call them in the middle of the night telling them there were people out to get her. She changed her phone number several times and began complaining of suspicious cars parked on her street. By September 2010, Yvette had become a complete recluse in her Benedict Canyon cottage. She stopped calling people and cut ties with everyone who knew her. Then in spring of 2011, one of Yvette Vicker's neighbors, Susan Savage, was beginning to get worried because no one could recall the last time they had seen the 82-year-old actress. Savage tried getting someone to come with her to check on Vickers, but couldn't find any takers. She worked up the courage to head over to the tiny cottage all by herself. As she climbed the front steps up to Vickers' door, she noticed a stack of new phone books and piles of moldy fan mail beneath the mailbox. 
By now, Savage was expecting the worst. And she found it. She pushed open a broken window in the doorframe and unlocked the door. Inside, she found a hoarder's collection. Stacks of boxes, piles of garbage, half-eaten food, and cobwebs everywhere. She eventually found a tarped-over gap in the drywall that she pushed through. Inside the room, she found a space heater still whirring over what at first appeared to be a pile of clothes and what looked like a blonde wig. It took Susan Savage several moments to realize that the pile of clothes actually contained the mummified remains of Yvette Vickers. Stories like these of Yvette Vickers and Pia Ferenkopf are especially tragic because of the circumstances that caused these people to be forgotten by everyone. There are other cases, though, of mummified remains that have been found where those involved would prefer that the past remain hidden. Sarah Jane Harvey lived in the same house on West Kimmel Street in the Welsh town of Rill for more than 40 years. After her husband Alfred died in 1938, she tried to make ends meet by taking in lodgers. This went on until April 1960 when Sarah Jane was admitted to the local hospital for observation. She had been feeling unwell for some time, although her doctors were having a difficult time determining what exactly was wrong with her. While she was away, her son Leslie and his wife decided to give Sarah Jane a nice surprise by cleaning and redecorating her house before she returned. But it turned out they were in for a surprise of their own. One of the first things Leslie decided to empty out was a large wooden cupboard that stood at the top of the stairs. Ever since he was a child, Leslie's mother had kept the old cupboard locked and always forbade him from opening it. She had told him it contained the belongings of a former boarder named Francis Knight, and that she had left them behind. But when Leslie pried open the cupboard door, he was horrified to discover the mummified body of a long-dead woman covered in layers of dust and spider webs. The corpse had been naturally mummified by the cupboard's warm, dry air. A pathologist would later note that the body had hardened so much that it even resisted a hammer and chisel. The police were notified, and of course the first person they questioned was Mrs. Harvey. They visited the elderly woman in her hospital room, and the first words out of her mouth were, Oh dear. At first, Sarah Jane denied any knowledge of the body. When the police suggested that the mummified remains might have been Francis Knight, Mrs. Harvey denied it. She insisted that Mrs. Knight had long since moved away to another town following World War II. But the police didn't buy this version of events, and eventually Mrs. Harvey broke down and told them another version of the story. This time she said she had rented Mrs. Knight a room in her house in early 1940. The woman had been separated from her husband, who still sent her two pounds a week for maintenance. Mrs. Knight was an invalid, so she had given Mrs. Harvey written authority to collect the money herself. One night, Mrs. Harvey heard her elderly tenant scream. She rushed to Mrs. Knight's room, only to find the old woman dying on the bedroom floor. Not knowing what else to do, Mrs. Harvey picked up Mrs. Knight's dead body and shoved it inside her cupboard, hoping to simply put all this unpleasantness behind her. Although police noted that even after Mrs. Knight's death, Mrs. Harvey continued to collect and cash the old woman's maintenance checks from her husband. Police didn't find this explanation any more convincing than her first story had been, mainly because the pathologist found that Mrs. Knight died with a stocking knotted tightly around her throat. Police arrested Mrs. Harvey and charged her with murder. The prosecution charged that Mrs. Harvey murdered Mrs. Knight for her maintenance checks, 
But the problem was the woman's remains were so thoroughly desiccated that the pathologist was unable to determine a cause of death. Mrs. Harvey's defense was then able to successfully argue that the stocking may have been wrapped around the old woman's neck, since doing so was a well-known folk remedy to cure the common cold. No one thought this scenario was particularly convincing, but no one could disprove it either. Ultimately, Mrs. Harvey was acquitted of murder, although she did serve 15 months in prison for fraudulently collecting Mrs. Knight's maintenance checks. The only person who knew for certain whether Mrs. Harvey was a murderer was Mrs. Harvey herself. But that's a secret she took to her grave. It turned out the mysterious illness she had gone to the hospital for was terminal cancer. The story of Mrs. Harvey and Mrs. Knight is not the only murder mystery involving mummified remains. There's one last tale I'd like to share with you. In October of 2000, Pakistani authorities received a tip that a Karachi man was attempting to sell a mummy on the black market for $11 million. Police questioned the man who admitted that he and an Iranian friend found the mummy after an earthquake and that they had agreed to sell the artifact and split the proceeds between them. Police brought the mummy to the National Museum in Karachi, Pakistan for inspection. At first, museum officials thought this was a major historical find. The body was that of a woman, and she was dressed in a golden crown, mask, and breastplate that proclaimed her to be the daughter of the great King Xerxes. This inscription, along with other Persian writing on the wooden sarcophagus, indicated that the woman had been a Persian princess who lived sometime around 600 BC. The mummy's discovery initially generated a lot of international press coverage. This was considered a big deal because the man who discovered the body said it had been found in Iran, which was a location where mummies had rarely ever been discovered, much less one from Persian royalty. At the same time, this discovery also created some diplomatic tension because both Iran and Pakistan tried claiming ownership of the mummy. But within a few months, people began to suspect the entire affair might have been an elaborate hoax. Experts in ancient languages began to doubt the authenticity of the Persian script on the sarcophagus. They said the writing appeared to have been done by someone who didn't have a solid grasp of the language. Then carbon dating and other testing done on the mummy revealed some shocking results. The body was shown to be that of an adult woman who had been about 4 feet 7 inches tall and no more than 21 years old at the time of her death. All her internal organs had been removed and her body cavity had been filled with a powdery substance. The problem was this substance turned out to be a thoroughly modern combination of bicarbonate of soda and sodium chloride. And tests showed that the woman died only four years earlier. An autopsy determined the woman's cause of death to be from a broken neck caused by blunt force trauma to the cervical vertebrae. But the forensic pathologist was unable to determine if this blow had been an act of murder or merely an accident. Police came to believe that the body may have been stolen from a fresh grave somewhere between Pakistan and Iran. The forgers had then perpetrated an elaborate hoax by removing the organs and drying the body out over several months with chemicals to make it look like it was centuries old. Whoever did it had to have considerable knowledge of both history and anatomy in order to perpetrate such an elaborate hoax. The evidence led Pakistani police to open a murder investigation, but thus far the dead woman remains unidentified, and the case remains as cold as a tomb. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, and Entirely Fictional Identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have some new Patreon supporters to thank. Thanks so much to Sandra... Brenda, Valerie, and Vicky, you're all amazing. 
And thanks again to all my patrons. If you're interested in helping support the show, you can follow the link to my Patreon page in the show notes. Patrons get all sorts of nifty bonuses like stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our bonus mini-episodes. Another great way you can help support the show is by subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Each review and subscription helps boost us in Apple's magical algorithms. If you're not on Apple, you can also find us on Stitcher, Google Play, and many of your other favorite podcast apps. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. Besides that, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, so feel free to drop us a line and let us know how we're doing. Thanks again, and I hope you'll join us again next time.